Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Once you enter the working world, it becomes pretty immediately clear there are rules that govern the way things operate. Some of those rules are written, but there's a great deal that's not. And for Black workers especially, unwritten expectations and practices affect what jobs they hold, whether they fit in among colleagues, how much they're paid, and what advancement prospects they have in real life, not just in theory. In her new book, Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It, Washington University sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield examines these realities and offers practical suggestions for moving toward equitable practices and workplaces. Adia is also the Vice Dean of Faculty Development and Diversity at WashU, and she joins us now to talk with us about it. Adia, welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you for having me. So let's get straight to gray and begin with a a working definition. What is a a gray area in the world of work? And can you provide an example of one um, that an interviewee describes in the book, maybe Max? (laughs) Sure. So when I talk about the gray areas, I'm referring to the parts of work that are a part of what we do as our work, but not necessarily endemic and core to our job descriptions. So for example, I'm a college professor that requires my job to include research, teaching, sometimes a great deal of university service, sometimes Mm -hmm. more than I (laughs) think I should be doing. But that's the core part of my job. But that's Mm -hmm. not all that is included in my job. It also includes forming connections and networks with colleagues that might be useful in finding out about other opportunities. It involves understanding the organizational culture where I work at WashU, and it involves forming relationships with people who might aid my interests in advancement and mm-hmm. moving up in the in the work world. So right. these social, cultural, relational parts of work are the areas that are a little more ambiguous. They are less subject to overt regulation, but because of that, those are also the areas where racial inequality can perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And I had asked about Max, partly because I, I think that um, sort of describing how he presents and the environment in which he works really sort of brings home what all of that means. Yeah, so he was such an interesting person to interview. Max was in, is an emergency medicine doctor, and I wanted to include him because by all accounts from the outside, you would look at his work and think, this guy has got it made. He's a doctor. He's gone to some of the top schools in the country. He's very high profile in terms of his career field. Doctors have a lot of status and Mm -hmm. money and prestige and all those great things that we want in jobs. But Max also told me pretty fairly early on in his interview that despite all those things, he's had cases where he's had patients who will come to the ER. I use explicit racial slurs and tell him, I'm not going to let you treat me and I'll sue you if you don't get me a white doctor. Mm -hmm. And he's sometimes said, fine, you can go wait for someone else to come on shift. That'll be another seven hours in the waiting room. But if that's what you want and people have said, fine, I'll go wait seven hours in the ER for someone else to come on who is a white doctor. And so I use this story because... 
it illustrates some of the ways that uh, we've seen kind of spotty progress when it comes to these questions of race and advancement, that you can still have black workers who have these lofty positions that would seem like they've achieved everything that they want, but they still find their authority undermined, they still experience disrespect, and they still find that they haven't really achieved all the things that we might think looking from the outside in. Mm -hmm. And Max also stood out to me because living here now in St. Louis for, for many years, one of the the things that brings people to this area is medical schools right. and right so the extent to which this is the sort of thing that happens and i don't know whether max is someone who's based here in st louis or elsewhere but it doesn't sound like a far cry from something that people would experience um when it comes to these gray areas right overall how did they emerge as something that warranted like such focused attention. Right. So for me, this has been the bulk of the focus of my career uh, since graduate school. I've always done research on racial inequality in workplaces. And the reason for that and the reason behind this book is that it just it presents to me such an interesting paradox that we are over 50 years removed from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed legal explicit discrimination. Since about the 1980s or 90s or so, we've also had a growing, really robust diversity industry where most companies would now say diversity matters. This is something that we're passionate about and we value, and this is really a commitment of ours that we want to prioritize. But yet at the same time, we continue to see black workers facing substantial discrimination in the hiring process. We continue to see black workers underrepresented when it comes to leadership roles. And we have examples like those I account for in the book from Max and from other workers where as part of their everyday work lives, they're experiencing these explicit or implicit issues with racial bias and harassment. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to use gray areas to think about how all those things can be true, right? How do we have this robust diversity industry? How have we explicitly outlawed overt legal racial discrimination, but still not seeing commensurate progress in the workplace right. for black workers? So things existing simultaneously, yeah. even though how does that work? Right. And why is it that you chose gray to describe them? Right. And some of that has to do with what I was saying before, that these are areas that aren't always completely precisely defined or evident, right? If you look at my job contract again for WashU, it'll say you're expected to do research, teaching, service, you're housed in the sociology department. This is your job. It won't say you also need to learn about the organizational culture here and understand what kind of culture it is and be mindful of what that means for you as a black worker. That's not listed in my employment contract, mm -hmm. but it's still part of the work that I have to do. And it's still one of those areas where, again, that murkiness can give rise to inequality. And mm -hmm. so gray areas is a way of trying to capture and highlight all of that. I'd like to invite you into this conversation. How have unwritten rules, expectations, or practices around work affected you? What have you done to deal with these challenges that those unwritten rules pose to getting a job, fitting in, or advancing your career? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpr.org. So these, um, those components, the gray areas for you, Adia, how do you know about them? Yeah, so it's interesting because I include some aspects of this in the book. I actually start uh, with a story that's uh, a little bit jarring about some experiences I had receiving pretty racist hate email and how for me that underscored the discrepancy between what black workers experience in the workplace and how often organizations are not prepared or committed to think through and deal with that reality. So in my case, I was 
home minding my own business, opened up my work email and got this overtly racist email. Uh, I initially didn't say anything about it to anybody at work. I was new here in St. Louis at the time. I was coming in 2015, shortly after some racial events rocked the, the region. And I just was not certain enough of my work environment to think to, to feel confident about how about sharing this with some of my other colleagues. Eventually, I did uh, mention it to IT because I wanted to have a record in case things escalated to a place that I got really uncomfortable with. Uh, but it underscored that this just wasn't a thing that my university or most universities, not even a single out WashU, most places are not prepared to think about how those aspects of work for black workers can become a factor. So to me, that became an experience of dealing with the broader culture of a university where this type of experience for black workers isn't often on their radar. Mm -hmm. um, and to think more about what that might look like for workers in other settings. Uh -huh. And what does research have to say about what you've described that you have experienced and that others have as well? Yeah. So what we know from research is that these issues with racial inequality at work and through workplaces are far from uncommon. There's a study from the proceedings from the National Academy of Science that shows that uh, racial discrimination for black workers has actually stayed pretty constant since about the 80s. And this is a data point that I bring up in the book because that's just jarring to me yeah. when you think about how much has changed since the 1980s, mm -hmm. right? When we were using Atari and like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. right, having cordless phones. Yeah. But the fact that racial discrimination in hiring has remained constant since that, I think is really telling. So mm -hmm. a lot of this is pretty common work in sociology and some other fields to show that this type of inequality is still present in yeah. work. Now, the approach that you took was to follow seven black workers, all in different jobs. So I'm going to run through these very quickly. Alex is a gig economy worker. Max, as we talked about earlier, is an emergency medicine doctor. Constance is a professor of chemical engineering. Brian is a filmmaker. Amala, uh, Amalia is a journalist. Darren is a corporate vice president. And Kevin is a nonprofit professional. So, Adia, which came first here? Was it the workers themselves or the kinds of work that they do? That's interesting. It kind of was some of both because I knew that I wanted to include people whose accounts could highlight some of the trends and processes that we've described in sociology uh, very clearly over the years. But I also wanted to make sure I was highlighting respondents and work experiences that kind of speak to their current moment. So that was a reason for making sure that I had Alex in there who is a gig worker. Mm -hmm. Gig work has changed a lot of the ways that we work over the past few decades. And I really wanted to be able to talk about what that meant for black workers. Mm -hmm. I wanted to include Constance because I wanted to make sure that I was able to talk about black women's experiences in STEM in particular and to mm -hmm. think about how race and gender matter so much for black women who are in these types of jobs. So it was some of both wanting to uh, be able to have the opportunities to talk to these broader issues that are happening, but also wanting to make sure that I was reflecting what I knew about the literature and the research. Mm -hmm. Was there any challenge of any kind to get interviewees to be candid with you about these gray areas? I mean, I'm thinking about the potential sort of uh, personal professional risks involved. Yeah, surprisingly, no. Respondents were very open, they were very candid, and they were really forthright about a lot of the things that happened. Now, I do note in the book that these are all people who are who are anonymized. Their names that are given in the book are pseudonyms. 
Um, and that's by design. But I think that also helped people to feel more comfortable being really open about some of the things they experienced. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to invite you again into this conversation. How have unwritten rules, expectations, or practices around work affected you? What have you done to deal with challenges those unwritten rules pose to getting a job fitting in or advancing your career? Call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet on uh, tweet, that is, at STL on air, or email us at talk at stlpr.org. So you had mentioned gig workers, um, and this stood out to me because it's, it is very different from the, the lines of work that the other six folks have. And reading about Alex also made me think about people I know both here in St. Louis as well in, as in places um, like Los Angeles who do gig work because it pays the bills so that they can make their music or their art. Why is it, I mean, you've talked about relevancy um, and sort of uh, demonstrating a range, but are there any other reasons that you included Alex and her story in this particular book um, among the others? Yeah, so Alex presents an interesting story, um, like you mentioned, because of the fact that she's doing this gig work and she's a bit different from some of the other respondents that I that I interviewed who are uh, formal employees of the places where they work, where they work in the most part. Um, but she also is interesting because it highlights, I think, some of the shortcomings in our current platforms of gig work. So to relate to what you were just talking about in terms of people who uh, are pursuing music or art or what have you, Alex told me um, that her long-term goal isn't to stay an Uber driver or an Uber Eats driver forever. She actually had entrepreneurial aspirations. She wanted to open her own business and uh, pursue that line of work. But gig work as it's currently structured doesn't really lend black workers or workers in general to that type of pathway. It's very short term. It's very finite. You're a contractor. You're not even an employee of the company and not entitled to the attendant benefits that are given to people who are formal employees. So I think it's useful to think about the parallels between her experience and what you're describing for other the people that you you mentioned, right? Gig work mm-hmm. can, in some cases, be something that offers some support for people who need additional income or need to make ends meet or want to focus on their true passion. But it doesn't always necessarily provide a direct pathway into doing that because it's not it's not designed to. Mm-hmm. And on the point of entrepreneurs, uh, there are many Black folks who. Um, who go into business for themselves. Is there a reason that you did not touch on that um, as you were talking about gray areas? I mean, I can imagine that that gray areas would affect um, securing funding, for Mm -hmm. example. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that entrepreneurial drive is a, I think the gray areas that I describe are a factor in the entrepreneurial drive. We know, for example, uh, from research that uh, black workers are more likely to talk about having aspirations for entrepreneurship than other race, than workers of other races are. And I think a lot of that has to do with what I describe in the book, the gray areas of feeling this pressure of trying to navigate organizational culture, of trying to think through the relational aspects of advancement and being stymied in so many cases. I think you're right also that other 
uh, stereotypes and preconceptions may play into the process of entrepreneurship for black workers, securing finances, getting seed money. I mean, we know that there's data that show that black workers are very underrepresented when it comes to having access to to those resources. Mm -hmm. But I think the gray areas may be part of what pushed people in that direction in the first place. Right, right. And was there, you know, your in your selection of interviewees and the section, the sectors that they work for, was that informed by who this book is written for? To some degree, yes, right? Because I wanted readers to have a broad sense of how these gray areas affect workers in a variety of different occupations, right? It's not just in the STEM fields. It's not just in the cultural or artistic fields. This is a broad phenomenon. And I'd like for readers to see that this is something that occurs across industries, across organizations, and understand the breadth of the issue. Mm -hmm. So this book is divided uh, into three categories or three gray areas. There's the cultural, the social, and the relational, which you mentioned before. And the cultural, the, the subhead for this is doing diversity badly. <laughs> uh, I mean, cultural change seems like the hardest yeah. sort of because of its scope. It involves many more people and, you know, forces that maybe are not as, um, as influential in social and relational change. In the book, you you did talk about your own experiences with that cultural gray. Is that why you started there, or was there some other uh, some other reason that you began? with something as big as culture? Yeah, that's a great question. I think with culture, I wanted to start there because I think it taps into key aspects of where we are as a society and how we think about these issues of diversity, right? And I mentioned to you before, diversity as an industry is a multi-billion dollar, with a B, (laughs) industry, right? Right, right? It's enormous. And I think because it is such a focal cultural point. We do often think, okay, well, we're doing this right and we're focusing on this and we're making the right steps. But we're not always making the right steps. And many companies are taking steps that don't actually serve to promote more diversity and don't actually serve to shift the culture in ways that can be relevant and meaningful for black workers. Mm -hmm. So starting there offers a way to get people to think about the everyday aspects of their workplaces and what those cultures look like and how fundamentally those can be structured in ways that might not be so welcoming for black workers. We're going to take a very quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the three uh, categories of gray area. We talked about the cultural. I'd like to hear about the social part now. You write about effects of social movements, uh, for example, hashtag Oscars so white and timing in the case of Brian, who's the filmmaker. How did forces outside his control play into his getting a studio job? 
Yeah, that's a, another great question. Uh, Brian had been interested in moving that direction for some time. He had done some independent films. He had been trying had been trying to break into the industry for some time. It's not easy to do that, as we might imagine. Right. And so he was very open that around the time when he finally, prior to him really getting some interest in an opportunity, was the Oscar So White campaign, in which uh, activists called attention to the fact that I think for two consecutive years in a row, the top categories for the Oscars, Best Actor and Best Actor, did not feature any actors or actresses of color. Um, And there was a lot of attention to that, uh, rightfully so. And so he connected that broader uh, push and that broader outcry to the forces in the studio that ultimately decided that they wanted to uh, pursue some different employment opportunities and to think about opportunities that led to him him being hired. So there was a real connection in his telling between that external push and the way that the studio responded. Mm-hmm. Now, I asked about this in the context of the social. What were the, the cultural things at play that stymied his uh, his efforts to do the work that he felt like he'd been hired to do. Right. So that's the other part of Brian's story, that he gets this job that it's a dream job for someone in his field, by all accounts. It's super exciting. He's signed on to produce films. And he's explicit early on and throughout his interview process that he wants to use this opportunity to highlight the breadth and diversity of black cultural experiences and put that on film for audiences. What he finds when he actually gets into the job is that many of his colleagues use this very market-based logic and rely on this market-based organizational culture to justify their unwillingness to support those films. So put simply, what they do when he pitches films that uh, have people behind them who have some backing, who have some credibility, is that his colleagues refer back, revert back to, yeah, but black films aren't going to sell. Or films with black directors aren't going to make their money back. There's not really a justification. We can't actually support doing this because it's just not financially in our bottom line. They never mention race specifically. It's always about the way that these films are not going to sell, not that they just don't like films by or about black people. But what's interesting about that is that when you dig a little deeper, which I did to look at the data, what the data show is that those statements are actually not true. That <laughs> films <laughs> that films with predominantly black-led casts and crews actually don't underperform. They actually are more likely to overperform relative to the resources that are put into them. Right. But that is not what Brian heard mm-hmm. from his colleagues. I also looked a little bit more deeply at some of the data and found that uh, the arguments that Films for black directors, uh, if they flop, shouldn't get a second opportunity, was not applied to white directors. They had multiple opportunities to direct films, even if they didn't perform. Mm -hmm. So this created this type of organizational culture that Brian found himself in, even after the studio expressed interest in what he said he wanted to bring to the table and his interest in trying to bring in and promote more films focused on black experiences. It became really easy to revert back to the market-based reason not to do that. Mm -hmm. And that affects even things like grant funding, Mm -hmm. right? So the relational part of the the gray, the larger sort of gray areas, is uh, it's subheaded as who's got your back, and nonprofits are something that uh, I have some personal experience with, and I think it can be very difficult to explain what it is like to work for a nonprofit organization. Now, Kevin is a black male nonprofit professional. And race and gender together, they really come to the fore when it comes to career advancement for him. Talk with us about that. Sure. And so what Kevin found in his workspace, which was a uh, 
which was an environment where most of his coworkers were white women, was that those racial and gender differences presented a lot of challenges. He described that he usually was not he would be told that he wasn't seen as a person who seemed like a good fit for leadership. His white women colleagues often didn't perceive him as someone who seemed to really belong in those types of, of roles. And it became really frustrating for him that there was this perception that he couldn't shake, even despite trying to be very careful about his self-presentation and his comportment, that he would very strictly modulate his vocal tones and the way that he spoke to people and his mannerisms and his behaviors, even his emotions at times. That, that he was very consistent about being very self-regulated. But ultimately, none of that mattered because he wasn't seen as someone who belonged in a leadership role. And this is true of Kevin, but it's emblematic of what happens for many black workers in these, not only in nonprofit spaces, but in many fields across many industries, that this perception of black workers as not suitable for leadership or not people who really have what it takes to move into those roles can overshadow their ability to prove that they really do have what it takes and that they do have those qualifications mm-hmm. and skills. And I'd found it really interesting that Kevin moved into the nonprofit world from finance. Right. And I feel like that is something that I have observed not only working here in St. Louis, but back in, in Los Angeles, where I most recently came from. What what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah, that was another interesting part of Kevin's story, that he had been in the financial industry, and he really didn't like it. He observed a lot of what he described as performative gestures around diversity and an emphasis on trying to be as uh, race-blind as possible at the same time. It wasn't a comfortable space for him. He didn't feel as if it really spoke to who he was inside. And part of why he left for the nonprofit arena was because he thought, this feels, ironically, like more of a fit. I feel like here I can give back. I can do something valuable. I can do something that has implications for kids and for communities and really be of service in that way. And the frustration for him was that he found such similar such similarities in the culture, in the orientations, in the performativity in both of those places that it became so hard and frustrating for him because, as he said, this is the exact same thing that I walked away from, <laughs> and I'm still dealing with it. It's still here. Right. Yeah. And I think that those expectations and what the reality is when you arrive there mm-hmm. and, and see, okay, so this is really what it's about. Now, the title... There are two we's in your title. There's the the we that works and then the we that fixes. Adia, are they the same? Not necessarily, right? And part of what I hope will result from this book in terms of readership is obviously, (laughs) hopefully I'll have a large readership. I want people to read the book and to think about the issues that are raised there. But there are multiple audiences for the book. I am hopeful that part of the we that reads the book are workers of any race who want to understand these questions of diversity and work better and think, you know, what is actually happening at my workplace? How do I understand these disparities? How do I make sense of what's going on? And hopefully, how can I make it better? But I also hope that black workers who are part of the we referenced in the title will read the book and think, okay, so this wasn't all in my head. I was right. This, all these things that I've been thinking have been happening, they're documented, they're real, they're happening to other people, and I'm not just envisioning these things that aren't really going on. Yeah. yeah. And I drew a breath there because I, I've heard people say, what you experienced is what you experienced. And it's individualized in a way that then makes it very difficult for things to be adjusted on any sort of... Uh, structural or, right. or systemic level. Um, 
was there something that was going on? I mean, you, you've been writing about race and gender and work and labor for quite some time. Um, the last time you were here was for flatlining, and mm-hmm. it was about those elements with the healthcare field. Were you already thinking about what you have laid out in gray areas you know, for some time? Or was there something that happened between your finishing flatlining and now that made you feel like this is the moment that I should be writing about this? Yeah, that's a great question. So in short, these questions are always on my mind. I've yeah, I just I spend so much time thinking about these issues that they're always part of what I'm thinking about professionally in some way or another. But if I had to identify a catalyst, I will tell you that I started the writing process in late 2020. <laughs> that doesn't sound like an accident. <laughs> it was not. Uh-huh. So if I'm thinking about a particular catalyst around putting together these ideas and thinking there's this, there's a moment for and there's a time for this work. Certainly, it was very heavily influenced by George Floyd, by the Black Lives Matter movement, by COVID and seeing how much it was laying bare many of the systemic inequalities in multiple social systems that we have in the U.S. and how black workers, in that case, uh, essential workers or who was considered essential and non-essential and who was on the front lines and who had access to or exposure, more, more exposure to the virus when we didn't have a lot of information about it and what it was what it was going to do for us long term. Those definitely were things that were top of mind when I started thinking about putting the book together. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to get a book contract for this? Uh, actually, no. I feel very fortunate that uh, I didn't experience a lot of difficulty getting mm-hmm. the book under contract. We're talking with Adia Harvey Wingfield about her new book, Gray Areas, The Way We Work, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It. Adia is a sociology professor at Washington University and vice dean of faculty development and diversity. So these gray areas... Do they persist, Adia, because they work for some or enough people? Or is it more about a lack of awareness of them and a lack of focused attention to them? Yeah, I think it's both of those things, right? I mean, if we're talking about these gray areas, certainly they do they do not work for black workers, but that doesn't mean that they don't work for all workers, right? And I think that there are some workers who benefit from black workers being marginalized and excluded and dealing with uh, obstacles in the way that I'm talking about. But I also think the issue of not knowing is a is a factor. I, you know, I don't know that people who are in organizational leadership have the time that I do to sit down and read sociology and management journals. <laughs> I don't know that they're necessarily keeping track of the right. literature and research in this area. Yeah. And I think many people may simply not know that the things that they are doing are not working or that the or the impact that the things that they are doing are having on their workers. Mm-hmm. So who should be doing that work, Adia? I think it's really critical for this to come from organizations and from leadership in organizations specifically. Uh, one of the things that I've talked about and written about before is that when that doesn't happen, I think the default is that frequently black workers end up trying to fix these issues themselves. And I cannot strongly enough say how much I don't think mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good idea. And that was a lot of what I wrote about in my previous book, Flatlining, that that ended up being the result of what I saw in the healthcare industry. But black workers are usually underrepresented in these organizations. They are underrepresented in these professions. They should not be trying to change organizations in mass. And ultimately, these are organizational issues. They're systemic. They are not things that a handful of people can 
resolve. And one of the things that we know as sociologists is that individuals alone can't solve organizational and structural problems. Those solutions have to come from leadership and they have to be embedded in policy and they have to be enacted at the organizational level. Mm -hmm. But is there a way, though, that individual workers, that they can be working with these things um, in order to make the, the gray less so and not more black or not not more white, but just clearer. Sure. And I don't say that to suggest that there's no role for individuals in addressing these issues. I think that there are things that everyday listeners who are concerned about these things can do. They can be advocates when it comes to hiring. They can be allies when it comes to raising attention to diversity culture and talking about organizational culture. They can be sponsors for black workers who are interested in leadership. So for everyday people, there are opportunities to do things. And I talk about some of these in the book as well. In the close of each sec section, there are suggestions for things that different workers at different organizational levels can do. Right. I just want to emphasize that I I, I just this shouldn't turn into a situation where black workers are then given the responsibility without the resources or the support to fix these long term organizational problems. I think that's when we run into failure. Okay. And you're articulating that <laughs> this is something that I have experienced and observed in many places over time. And it, this part about fixing it, because that is part of your title. Mm -hmm. And in the introduction, you write about overcoming, quote, the sociologist's tendency <laughs> toward fatalism. <laughs> so, you know, how to fix it, that part is, is, it speaks to that. And there are checklists in this book mm -hmm. you just refer to. I mean, is it cynical of me to ask, what's to prevent those items from becoming checkboxes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the difference there and the what makes it easier to overcome my tendency towards fatalism as a sociologist <laughs> is that we actually are in a great moment where we do have data about what works. And so those are the points that I refer to in the, the book. I think if companies are drawing from evidence-based solutions about things that actually work, not things that every other company is doing, not things that just seem like they should work. But if they're drawing from the data and the research about things that we know can actually change culture, can change hiring practices, can change opportunities for advancement, it doesn't become a checkbox as much as it becomes a part of a process for actually creating long-term organizational change. And mm -hmm. I think that's when we start to see the minimization of some of these gray areas and a transformation of our workplaces into environments that are better served for serving their workers and the communities that they are dealing with. And where has that worked? So in the book and the conclusion, I do talk about some companies that with varying degrees of success, have put into place some of these uh, suggestions. I discuss Google, um, Coca-Cola, and GV, which is a venture capital firm specifically. And those are examples of companies that, like I said, with varying degrees of success, have put into place uh, some of these initiatives to, that are evidence-based to try to make these, these changes. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the term best practices? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a very industry term. I think, you know, we hear it, we hear it a lot. Um, but I think if we're talking about best practices being things that are based in evidence and in the data and are things that have been shown to yield results, then I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to what extent would you say, idea that gray areas is less a how-to and more of a why-to? 
Yes, I think it's, I would classify it very much more as a why to. My hope is that readers will come away, like I said, with a much deeper and more nuanced understanding of the experiences and challenges that black workers face and come away with an understanding of why, the answer to the question that I posed earlier, why we see this paradox happening of so much investment in diversity and decades passing after the Civil Rights Act and not seeing much progress. So for me, it's much so, more so about why these issues are persisting with some suggestions for how to fix sure. them, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily just a how-to guide. Mm-hmm. And this last wrap-up question here, what is some more research on this topic that you would like to pursue? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, I like I said, I think about these issues so much and all the time. I am interested in d- digging down into specific sectors of the of the economy and different industries and thinking more about how these are present um, in particular ways in certain fields. I also think a lot about how work is changing and what that's going to mean for the future of work and for these gray areas as we're dealing with things like AI, as we continue to see uh, increasing globalization. I'm just so curious about what all that is going to mean for work in our workplaces in the future. Adia Harvey Wingfield is a professor of sociology and vice dean of faculty development and diversity at Washington University. Her newest book, Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It, was published earlier this week, and she'll be talking about it this coming Monday evening at 7 at Left Bank Books. Adia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer and Elaine Cha. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.